I hope that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that what you were just singing, you truly believe and you truly mean. Because there may come a time that that is going to be tested, where you're going to have to back that up with action. And not just in the safe spaces of the confines of a worship service with other people who agree with you and believe you and support you, but out there in a culture that does not, to believe that he is worthy and he alone is worthy and that we would bow to no other but him. I want to give you just the briefest of a history lesson just to set the stage for where we are so that the story perhaps makes a little bit more sense and we don't miss some of the important details. The event in time that we're talking about is the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian captivity. This took place around 586 B.C. Now, backing up before that, centuries before that, God had made a covenant with his people. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we've gone through Genesis and Exodus, you've seen the giving and the unfolding and the implications of this covenant. And some of those terms that he gave are unequivocally clear. No gray area here. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 10. The Lord says to the people of Israel, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that God, that the Lord God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Imagine if you were among the nation of Israel. You were one of those Hebrew recipients of that promise, a part of the covenant people. You're conscious every day of your uniqueness, that God has called you out, that God has set you apart, that God has given you a mission, that you enjoy a unique privilege of his presence with you, you have his law, which is a covenant of behavior that governs your relationship with him. You have the promise of atonement through the sacrificial system he gives in, in the tabernacle. You're not like those other people, and yet you're there to be an exemplar of God's people, to invite the nations to this one true God. But over time, as human nature would dictate, people become more complacent. They begin to make presumptions about grace and forgiveness. They begin to be complacent about their own sin. They begin to compromise around the edges, first of belief and then behaviors. Somewhere, like generations after it would do and generations before it had done, the people of Israel began to assume that whatever they did, God would forgive them. He'll be patient, He'll understand. But the very things that God had warned them about, the very things that the prophets, those preachers of that age, had begun to tell them about, 
that was coming was already beginning to happen around them. Their hearts were already beginning to be drawn away towards these other gods. They were already beginning to feel the appeal and the draw of the cultures around them. Life that they thought was free, quote-unquote, of the barriers that God had placed on them. But in choosing to disobey God, they were choosing bondage to sin and to their own lusts and desires. And when they heard the message of warning from prophet after prophet, they falsely assumed, well, this is not for me. This is not about me. This is always someone else. And yet they still would identify themselves as people of God. We are still God's people. And maybe they thought, perhaps like modern day people do, that as long as I'm going through the motions of my faith, as long as I show up periodically to tabernacle then or church today, as long as I do certain things, I can keep the facade going, but on the inside, the heart was changing. And God knows our hearts. And God was evaluating the hearts then just as he does now. And every real change in our life starts in our hearts, what we think, what we feel, what we believe, what we do. And the people had slipped far away. And after years and years of compromise and sin, God finally brought about judgment. In 722 B.C., the whole of the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled to Assyria. And if that were not bad enough, the bondage under the Assyrians, it became much worse 120 years later when they were taken in by the Babylonians. 597 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the antagonists in the story of the book of Daniel, besieged Jerusalem. Incredible devastation, suffering, and the deaths of thousands and thousands of Jewish people ensued. And then he took away the captives. He took the people into exile. And this Babylonian captivity began. And in this exile, they encounter a very different culture, very different government, a very different religion, a very different world. And yet they're challenged by the commands of God and the covenant they have with God to still be his people. And last week we looked at one of the first lessons we have to draw from the letter or the book of Daniel. And that is this, even in a culture like that, that denies your God and embraces many others, that lives in a way contrary to what you've always been taught, believed, and been commanded, and that tries to decimate your sense of, of culture and history, even in that context, you can resist by refusing to compromise. And there are several sub-points I want to make, and I'll try to focus in on one that I think is most important today, to keep it simple. But I want you to know that you can live in a kingdom that denies Christ and still not be assimilated to it. We've seen this over and over again in generation after generation that you can live in an exiled kingdom. You can live under cruel rule. You can live under injustice. You can live under oppression. You can live under those who have false gods and still not cave, not become assimilated. You remember in Daniel chapter 1, we saw the means of assimilation, education. We'll give them our language. We'll teach them our literature. We'll educate them in our ways. We saw the indoctrination of lifestyle. Here's how we live. These are the things that we eat and drink, and this is how we entertain ourselves. This is what we pursue, even to their very identities. No longer identify yourself as what you used to be. This is who you are now. And they went so far as to even change their names 
trying as much as they could to completely cut off their relationship with their God, their faith, their belief. You and I don't control the times in which we live. And it would be fruitless, and more than that, it would be foolish, I think, for us to simply grow embittered or complain or bemoan the fact that God put us here now, or our kids here now, or our grandkids here now. God in his sovereignty, God in his goodness, God in his absolute knowledge knows who you are and where you are, and more importantly, why you are. I would encourage you to take up that as a challenge, not as a reproach, but a challenge that God has entrusted certain things to you right now in such a time as this. And I'm not trying to extol any of us or elevate any of us to a position of, say, a heroic figure like Esther, but I'm saying the same principle applies. Instead of saying, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? God, I fear so much for the world my kids are growing up in or that my grandkids are going to face. Say, God, in something that you see, in something that you know, in some work you're going to do in me as you develop me through my relationship with you and my commitment to your people, the church, and our relationship with one another, you're going to accomplish your purposes in our time with us. And God has taught us throughout history and his word that you can live faithfully as a follower of Jesus Christ in any time, in any setting, any location, any culture, under any kingdom. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bring understanding to us as we look at this text. And not just that we say, okay, I get what's happening. But Father, that we would get what's happening now and here and what you're saying to us through your word, what you're challenging us to do. And Father, that by your Holy Spirit, we would feel prepared, readied, not discouraged, but encouraged. And that, Father, that some today would make decisions, resolutions today that will be tested in days to come. But they're made today, before that furnace of affliction comes, that in that moment... When they're challenged to hold fast, to stand strong, to be clear, to represent you, to yield to no one but King Jesus, that they would. They would bow to no other. Father, I pray that you prepare us for that day. Teach us. Equip us. Use us, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've shared some of these with you before, and sometimes I use these as a, as a tool in my in my own devotional time, this is from the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. And I love the thought that was put in and the, the depth that you see in prayers like these that were written out. I want you to consider this prayer, an anonymous prayer written in an area different than ours. O Lord God, Thou art our preserver, governor, savior, and coming judge. Quieten our souls to call upon Thy name. Detach us from the influence of the flesh and the senses. Impress us with the power of faith. Promote in us spirituality of mind that will render our services acceptable to thee and delightful and profitable to ourselves. Bring us into that state which attracts thine eye and prepares us to receive the proofs of thy love. Show us our danger that we may fly to thee for refuge. Make us sensible of our sin's disease that we may value the good physician placard us to the cross that it may slay the enemy of our hearts help us be watchful over our ways jealous over our tempers diligent over our hearts and when we droop revive us when we loiter quicken us when we go astray restore us 
possess us with more of that faith, which is the principle of all vital godliness. May we be rich in faith, be strong in faith, live by faith, walk by faith, experience the joy of faith, do the work of faith, have hope through faith. Perceiving nothing in ourselves, may we find in the Savior wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. May that be true of us. Our text today is Daniel chapter 3. Look with me at Daniel chapter 3. Now, let me set this up like this for a moment. It really is a focal point of a one major point I want to drive home from this text today. But it would be difficult to see without understanding the whole picture, the whole story. So I know for many of you, the story is going to be somewhat familiar. Um, for those of you who grew up in church, you might even have some, I don't know, some flannel graph images in your mind of this. I know that dates some of us a little bit. But I want you to go beyond what's obvious in the story. It's not less than that. But there is more to what's obvious here, I think, that we need to see and apply. So let's look at Daniel chapter 3. I'm just going to read the account. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Are you getting some of the intentional redundancy of the text? There's a reminder to us as we read this that Nebuchadnezzar didn't see or know that you and I as Christians, as God's people, ought to know. It is God who sets up and tears down. God doesn't simply rule in the heavens awaiting for his turn back here on earth. He rules here and now. He sets up and tears down. But this image, almost to us, of this ridiculous notion, he's gathering everyone. Don't you see? Everyone's coming. Everyone's going to be there to worship. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. For those of you who know a little bit more of the Old Testament, this rings a familiar bell to those Hebrews, doesn't it? They remember that time in the wilderness where they tragically lost faith, deviated horrifically from God's plan, suffered egregiously for setting up a God that was not the God of Abraham. And they set up this false God to worship, and God judged them mightily for it. Surely this is ringing in their ears. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's kind of an interesting sociological insight, I think, that it seems easier to gather people together, to unify people, to create solidarity around lies than the truth, around false gods than the one true God. So they gather. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward. Ah, here's a twist. And maliciously accused the Jews. 
they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, you get it, every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, this is faith. This is not faith removed from life and reality and consequence. This is not faith as an idea. This is not something just sort of philosophical, ethereal out there. What I think I believe, how I think I feel. This is faith applied. Faith in both the power of God, that God can do whatever he will, that you are not sovereign, Nebuchadnezzar, but our God is. But not just in the sovereign power of God, but faith in the sovereign will of God. Because our God can, and, and we believe that he will, but if he does not, nonetheless, we will not bow. We trust in a God who keeps his own counsel. We'll do what he will, but whatever happens here, how we see God and how we obey God is not going to change. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Probably metaphoric. As hot as they could possibly make it. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them in the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Now, if the story ended there, if it ended there, and that's all that we had, our faith in God should not change. Shouldn't shift. Our view of God shouldn't change. What they said would still be true. And we should still be ready to face whatever comes our way that would challenge us to deny our God, to surrender our faith, to bow to a false God in just the same way. 
We should expect that the vindication will still come, that God will still be God. Now we have the rest of the story, which is amazing, starting in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's as if they were never even in there. And for those of you who wonder how amazing this is, you obviously don't have a big green egg that you've overstoked with fire. <laughs> I can tell you the number of times I've singed the hair off my forearms and eyebrows, and still these eyelashes grow down from that time that Zach and I decided to serve hot dogs in Grove Park on, on Halloween and overstoked the grill and burned myself up, but that's a whole other story <laughs> for another day. It's like they weren't even there. So protected, untouched by what was attempted. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. How many of you read that story before? You knew the story. You knew what happened. There was no cliffhanger for you. You know, it would be easy if the story's primary lesson was this. When challenge comes, trust God, have faith, do the right thing, and he will deliver you from any pain or suffering or consequence. But the history of God's people shows us otherwise. Certainly there have been those miraculously delivered. We'll see again that the hero of the book, aside from the hero who is Christ, Daniel, was delivered. These men were delivered. But generations and generations of faithful followers of Christ, generations of martyrs, have used those words, I know that he can deliver me. I, I trust that he will deliver me, but even if he does not, we will not bow. And they found their vindication in eternity. The setting here, this Babylon, this event, and what I would call in the story its central plot device, so this is a true story, this fiery furnace, is a picture in a bigger sense of what God was doing to his people, for his people as a whole. We've already seen that God delivered them out of what he called the iron furnace of Egypt. The Egyptians were bent on not just exploiting the Jews for their personal gain, but as you read the story of the Exodus, they were bent on ultimately destroying them completely. Out of this iron furnace, according to Deuteronomy 4.20, the Lord has taken you and brought you out to be a people of his own inheritance, he said. But in this journey now to the land of promise that he has for them, 
He's still working on them. The term that we would use would be sanctification. He's delivered them, but they are not yet faithful to him. Their identity has been so warped and contorted by 400 years under false gods and false religion and a poor government and and a bad culture, and he's shaping them and molding them so that we see in Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. It's not the superiority of the Assyrians or the even greater superiority of the Babylonians that are in view here. It's the intentional work of God. Because you've not obeyed, then I'm going to discipline you and shape you this way. But in this furnace of affliction, God is shaping a people. He's delivering a people. So you think about the times in which we live and why we're in such times as this. We're reminded that God has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for us here. As we reflect back on Jesus' own high priestly prayer. When he prayed to the Father, not that he would take them out of this world, but that he would be with them in this world. We're reminded that in this world, God has placed us here and now. While we are saved from it, we are not yet saved out of it. So what do we do? So in our salvation, we're delivered from a furnace, a fire far greater than the furnace that Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonians could create. The fire of God's own judgment, our God who is a consuming fire. And yet now we're being tested and tried and refined as in a fire, being purified and made ready for him to become more like him, to be ready for him in glory. So it would be helpful for us to think of our own spiritual experience, I think, in terms of exile like these. Exile is where God redeems a people, where he saves them out of. You once were in the kingdom of darkness, but now you're in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's own dear son. We've been rescued out of that. Exile is a place where God refines for himself a people, just as he did for the Hebrews in the Old Testament. As you've heard me say repeatedly, God demonstrates his relentless commitment to our sanctification. I will not stop. I will shape you and mold you. Exile is where God readies us for eternity. There's a purpose for this. As God is using us as a witness to call the nations to himself, as he's preparing us for eternity... And through all this, God is revealing his glory. I'm showing you who I am. I'm showing you the God who's trustworthy and true. I'm showing you the God of power and goodness. I'm showing you the God who's worth it. Now, in this furnace of affliction comes this great challenge and opportunity for God's people. And I chose those words intentionally. And maybe this speaks more to me than it does to you. But I think sometimes we look at the culture around us and we see the shifts and the changes and the challenges to us as a Christian and we only see them in terms of opposition. Frightful challenge. And it's going to get harder. It's going to get worse. We're, this, is, this is bad. This is going to be tough. I don't know how I'm going to handle this at work or I don't know how I'm going to deal with this as a, as a teacher in, in, in my public school or you know, they're putting all new diversity and inclusion requirements in my place of work and you know, what's happening with the government? What's going to happen with our money and our economy? All these things. And in a sense, yes, it is a challenge, but it is also an opportunity. There's an opportunity for the people of God to stand up. And this abomination, Nebuchadnezzar's abomination, is just that opportunity. You can read more for yourself and do some of the background study on this, but it's a pretty fascinating thing that even that this thing could stand up is kind of fascinating. Nine stories tall, 90 feet tall with a base that's nine feet. I, I'm, not, you know, I'm not great at physics and all that, but, nor am I an architect, but I don't even know how they kept that thing standing, to be honest with you. 
But here's this abomination of a statue, and he calls everyone to worship this golden idol. And we're trying to wonder why. What is he doing here? Well, again, we're not going through verse by verse, so you don't have the context yet unless you've read it yourself. But if you read in Daniel chapter 2, you remember a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted for him. And in this dream, there's a statue. It's an imposing statue. But in the dream, only one part of the statue is gold. And that's the head. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head. You're, you're that gold piece. When he interpreted it, he said this, You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In other words, God set you up for such a time as this. In contrast to all the times you said you set up. The God of heaven has given this to you in your hands. He's placed mankind, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them. You're that head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. And we don't know exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, and we'd be foolish to try to assume. But perhaps Nebuchadnezzar, in seeing that statue and having interpreted him, decided, you know what? I'm not going to simply be the head. I'm going to be the whole statue. I will have no competing kingdoms. We think of the words that they came appealing to him with. Oh, king, live forever. Maybe he falsely thought he would. Maybe he had these delusions of grandeur, of his own divinity. Whatever the case, he decided to establish himself as the statue. This unending kingdom. None like me, none before me, none after me. Certainly we see Nebuchadnezzar and all of his spiritual weakness and his moral weakness being vulnerable to pride. And pride would be his undoing in chapter 4. And of course then you have these ever-present, jealous officials. Certainly resenting the wisdom and the skills of men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, or and Abednego. Resenting them. They loathe them. They loathe the positions they've been given and they were seeking to undo them. Look, they don't worship. Whatever the case, something changed in his thinking from saying to Daniel in chapter 2, verse 47, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. To now saying you worship this one. There's something not in your notes, but you should probably make note of. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar up till now has never said your God is the only God. He recognized something of superiority in that moment, but then back down from that. And in that culture, not unlike many cultures that still exist today, people are willing to accept many gods. What they're not willing to accept is one true God and the means to him being his son, Jesus. So there's real tension here. Verse 16, real tension. If you won't bow, you go into the furnace. And when he gives them a second opportunity, they speak clearly of why they're not going to bow. But this is something I don't want you to miss. This is an unknown outcome to these men. Their response was not contingent upon any foreknowledge they had that this was going to work out well for them. And I want you to hear that. I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to make sure you see that. You know, when you and I read the story, we get all of it in context. We get the beginning and the end and the whole picture. And we can say, well, God was going to deliver them all along. Well, we know what God did, and we might assume what God's intentions were because he carries them out, but they had no way of knowing that. And that wasn't the basis of their obedience. Does that make sense? Not sure if you're with me. They didn't obey because they knew nothing was going to happen to them. They obeyed fully expecting everything threatened to happen to them. And that's a big difference. They obeyed, expecting the outcome that Nebuchadnezzar had said. So why did they 
obey God and not the king? Why did they? And I want you, if you can, just for a moment, to imagine yourself in, in that sort of setting. Can you imagine all the ways that you or I might or any of the other Hebrews might rationalize or justify not doing what these men did? I mean, can, can you imagine? So some would say, you know what? I don't think God wants to lose three of his best men here. I, I, I can't see how that could be beneficial. I mean, guys, look, we've been elevated to, to positions of authority and influence here. We got, we got a good thing going here. Let, let's not jeopardize that. And they begin to rationalize human wisdom with God's commands. I, I, I don't see how in this setting, in this situation, what God has told me to do fits. I don't, I don't think it works here. I think what's better, let me rationalize this, it's better for me just to do what I think is best. Surely God doesn't want to lose these three young men. And I can just imagine others in that time arguing in terms of the culture around them. Look, guys, we're called to be an influence here. We're, we're called to represent God here. You know, we don't want to lose our opportunity. Look, they don't understand our religion. And we don't have time to explain it here. But we don't want to create any waves here. We don't want to create any difficulties. If, if we don't bow now, I mean, if we bow down now, and we just go ahead and go through, this, through the motions, it'll preserve our opportunity to have discussions with them later. Let's not, let's not forsake the opportunity to do evangelism. And in our culture today, it seems like so many arguments are being made. Let's not take a stand on difficult issues. Let's not say, thus saith the Lord, or the Bible's clear, because we want to be able to do evangelism. But that's not what they did. Some would just argue, I think, forgiveness. Listen, I can do it. God's full of grace and mercy. God will understand. I'm going to bow. I know the commands are very clear. I know, I mean, goodness, you can't read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and not know how clear this is. Un you know, unambiguous. I'll just bow and God will forgive me. And they commit that age, ages old offense of presuming upon the grace of God. Sinning with presumption. Others would probably just make a silent protest. I'm going to be bowing, but in my heart I'm standing. And God knows my heart. My knees may be on the ground. My face may be in the dirt, but my hands, Lord, you know. But not these three. Why? Not these three. Why? These three were faithful to the God who delivered them. The God who'd covenanted with them. The God that ruled over them. If I were to summarize that in just one, perhaps old English word, I would say the word is fealty. Fealty. Kind of an old English word. Cambridge Dictionary says it's loyalty. The sort of loyalty especially given to a king or a ruler. He is our king. He is our ruler. And we will maintain our allegiance to him at any cost. That's fealty. All right, we're in the home stretch, so what does this have to do with you? I don't want you to go out of here saying, cool story, bro. What does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with our times that we live in right now? Well, think of the trajectory of these three young men. Now, we don't know where Daniel is. Where's Daniel? I, I don't know. I don't want to speculate. Maybe he's out on King's business, or maybe... Nebuchadnezzar removed him from the mix somehow. I, I don't know. Scripture doesn't say, and I don't want to argue from silence. 
But we know that Daniel, along with these three young men, had found favor with the king. Remember, we saw that when they didn't compromise, and they showed the benefits of faithfulness to God and what they did and how they ate and how they drank and how they lived. He saw value in that. He saw their wisdom. He saw what they had to offer. I mean, he's pragmatic, if nothing else. And they'd been elevated. They had favor there. I don't know how to say this succinctly and clearly enough, but I I hope this will make sense to you. Be very wary of that inner desire that's common to our flesh that just wants to be accepted, that just wants to be liked, just wants to be valued, that wants to find favor. If their story teaches us anything, it teaches that enjoying favor in Babylon is rare and short-lived. If you are living for the pleasure of the one true God, if you're living under the rule of that God and following the commands of that God, and if you're going to be faithful to that God, then you have to know that favor in Babylon is rare and short-lived. And by the way, as we think of the spiritual themes of exile, like Peter wrote about in 1 Peter, the reality is wherever you live, you live in some version of Babylon. There are just better neighborhoods. We just happen to live in a better neighborhood right now. There are parts of the world where it's much worse. I get that. But if you're looking for favor with Babylon and its rulers as a follower of Jehovah God, don't expect it. Maybe even more emphatic for us, and I want you to weigh this in your own thinking, and I pray the Holy Spirit will cause it to bear on you. If comfort and ease and acceptance are your aims, hear me out. If comfort, ease, and acceptance are your aims, at some point you're going to deny Christ in this world. And I I want to say that most emphatically to those of you who are a different generation than mine. You know, sometimes I get called derisively boomer. I'm not. I'm not that old yet. But I am also not at that age that seeks social acceptance and credibility via my Instagram account. And if you're after the acceptance of this world... And if you want this world to go easy on you and not to cause ruffles or draw any flack or push back, and if you want to be accepted, at some point you're going to deny Christ. You're going to deny the commands of Christ, the way of Christ, or even Christ himself. Because this world is opposed to it, and we see that more and more clearly. But you and I, we demonstrate that we truly belong to Christ, not in our private times with him, not even in our gathered times, in, as I said earlier, in safe spaces like this with other believers, but you and I will demonstrate that we're truly His at the intersection of adversity and obedience. When to obey Christ now is costly, when to obey Christ now is unpopular, when to obey Christ now is illegal, that, at that moment, at that intersection, we demonstrate who our king is. And I would say that a Christian's fealty, loyalty, faithfulness, use whatever term you'd like, a Christian's fealty to King Jesus has to be unconditional. See, that's the lesson here. I mean, I think Israel would have much preferred a lesson that said something like this. Like I said earlier, whatever they ask you to do, if it's contrary to what God has told you to do, don't do it, and I'm going to rescue you. But that wasn't the lesson here. 
the lesson here is that your faithfulness to me really has to be unconditional. And if we've learned anything from history and from the scriptures, that has to include even up to death. Potentially. And I ask the question, why these three? From my understanding, I center on this. Truly knowing God is the necessary foundation or prerequisite for courageous faith. It will be hard to be courageous in the moment. It will be hard to pay a cost. It will be hard to suffer for. It will be hard to lose my acceptance in this world, uh, my friendships in this world, or even my comfort and health in this world for a God that I don't know, that I'm not sure about, that I'm not convinced of that I don't sense a loyalty to, just, that just won't make sense. I mean, there are certain things that I enjoy for sure. I'm not going to die for it. There are certain opinions that I have. I wouldn't give my life for them. But a faithfulness, a fealty to, to King Jesus, to really know the God of the Bible, that's a prerequisite. And that's why I call this, with some emphasis, the most important question that Nebuchadnezzar asked them. Who is this God who will deliver you from my hands? Can you see the arrogance in that? But it's the arrogance of someone who doesn't know God. Who is this God? Nebuchadnezzar expected this answer. There is none. Don't you get it? Don't you see my statue? I'm the God here. Who can deliver you? None. But they knew the answer to that question. They knew the answer to that question. Who is this God who can deliver you? Do you know the answer to the question? And is he worth it to you? Is he worth it to you to stand in that moment? So that brings us all to this one point. And when I said I, I wanted to give this a simple message, I didn't mean there wouldn't be a lot of information in detail. I just was challenged in a reading from Nine Marks this week. Give simpler sermons. And so I'm trying to drill down. And here's one lesson. Listen, you can demonstrate your fealty to King Jesus by refusing to bow to the gods of this age. And faithfulness to King Jesus is most important. Look, we've seen examples of bad governments, totalitarian regimes, oppressive governments um, throughout history. Governments that demanded that the people be absolutely subservient. Governments that demanded absolute fealty to them and their demands. We see this in Babylon. In ancient Rome, that first generation of, of believers as a church just flourished. They were challenged by Rome and all of its provinces to choose between Kyrios Caesar, Caesar is Lord, or Kyrios Christos, Christ is Lord. They had to choose. Many died for that choice. More recent history, when Japan invaded Korea and Manchuria between World Wars I and II, they imposed emperor worship on the people. They conquered Christians, Confucians, Buddhists. They made them bow. Many died. In contemporary China, there's some freedom of worship for Christians as long as they're in state-sponsored, state-regulated, quote-unquote, official churches. But those underground house churches are heavily persecuted today. Modern India is increasingly moving towards their goal of a Hindu state, trying in so many places to crush and put out 
Christianity, to crush the gospel. And like Nebuchadnezzar, these empires typically have not required people to change their religion or their beliefs just as long as they were subservient to the state. Keep your beliefs as long as it's private, as long as it doesn't enter the public square, as long as it doesn't address anybody else. In your own churches, at least for now, you can. In your own homes, at least for now, you can. But don't bring that to work. Don't bring that to school. Don't bring that into government. It has no, no place here. Your allegiance here is to bow. So people can serve whatever God they choose as long as it takes second place. And Christians say our God can never be in second place. Foundational to who we are is that there is no God before him. So when we put it in those kind of terms, it's evident that our culture places that sort of pressure on us too. Do you not feel it? Have you not experienced it yet? Your college students have. Some of you have in your places of work. Those of you who serve the government or military have seen it. Increasingly, we're being told that things that we believe are not only incorrect, but they're harmful. And at some point, they'll become illegal. Under that sort of pressure, these young men have said, we will not bow. We refuse to bow. And when you refuse to bow to the gods of this age, or any age, be prepared for an angry reaction. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face changed. Be prepared for the angry reaction. Be prepared for the pushback. I don't want to sound like you know that angry guy on the porch saying, get off my lawn, but I can't help but think in context of passages like this, these men stood there before a furnace that would surely eliminate them in fractions of a second, and yet they said, we won't bow. And we have so many that claim to be Christian that are afraid that somebody might say something ugly on their Facebook page. Somebody won't like them anymore. He was filled with fury. But don't yield. Don't yield. Just know that the world hates you when you don't bow to their idols. The world will hate you if you don't bow to their idols. It's always been true. So the question for you, as you bring this down to your life, your decisions, your place in this world, where and about what will you draw the line? Where and about what will cause you to draw the line? I'm not talking about everything you disagree with. You know, we don't have a book of Daniel with all their complaints about housing in Babylon or camel pathways or taxes. or We're talking about those things that are so very clear that they would cause me to deny my own God. You know, back in Bible times, false gods were easy to identify, weren't they? There were things like statues, Baal, Molech, Ashtoreth, Chemos, so many gods in Scripture that competed for the attention of the God of Israel. And those names don't pop up as much, though the demons behind them are still at work. But the gods are maybe a little bit more difficult to identify today in our culture. But it doesn't mean our culture doesn't have them. Sex. 
self, science, and the list goes on. The things that we elevate over any sense of God and His authority over us. So when I answer that question, where and about what will I draw the line? These are the parameters that I use. You decide yours. First one is clear that I will not deny the Lordship of Christ. I will not deny that Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just mine. He's not just my truth. He is the revealed truth of God. He's the Lord of all. And I will not deny the exclusivity of Christ as a means to salvation. There is one God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord of all. Just one. Not many. Christ and Christ alone. I will not affirm what Scripture calls an abomination. I will not affirm it. I will not say that that's an acceptable alternative. I will not deny that which is plainly true or that which perpetuates lies. I will not. I will not participate in that. I will not participate in that which is, contributes to the insanity of living by lies. And ultimately, I will not knowingly violate God's laws or my conscience. Because to do either is to sin. And I think this is the stand we make. Christ is Lord and only Christ. His word tells us what is good and what is evil. His word tells us what is true and what is false. And he's given us something to live by. And in those areas where I find it to be gray or challenging, but my conscience is pricked, I will not violate my conscience, even when I don't know for sure the clarity of Scripture on the matter. Because he who violates his conscience sins. Well, we know the rescue. King Nebuchadnezzar is astonished in haste. He looks, and there three men got thrown in. And he looks, and he sees four men in the fire. And he says, this one looks like a son of the gods. Now, I know you've heard a lot of clever sermons about who that person was. The text doesn't say for sure. And we can't substantiate it by the text. So we can't say for sure, is this a Christophany, which would be a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ with them? Or if this is an angel that he sent? Either way, the point is still the same. It's a picture of the presence of God with them to deliver them. And it's a foreshadowing of God who will dwell with us, Emmanuel, Christ Jesus, who will deliver us. And Nebuchadnezzar's response, as you read, he seemingly yields in those final three verses to the one true God. The move to saving faith, I think, doesn't happen probably until chapter 4. There's more humbling to be done. He's acknowledging the reality of this God. Soon he'll have to acknowledge the exclusivity of this God. And, of course, the result for the young men, he promotes them. Verse 30. They came out winners on this side. But, again, that's not the message. What if it doesn't happen that way? How does that change the story? How does that change your response to it? How does that change what God wants you to do? Are you prepared to stand regardless? Are you prepared to say, like the three young men did, our God is able to deliver us? He will deliver us. But if he does not deliver us, we still will not serve your God or worship false gods. Why can we do that today? I want to conclude with this. Because we know God will deliver us just like they did. Listen, that, that, that statement is so telling. I mean, that's the, that's the crux of the matter. I, I spent all this time talking to you with so many words today to get to that point. Our God can. We believe he will. But either way, we will not bow. 
You and I have to have that exact same mindset. And here's how you and I can actually have it better and stronger than even these three men. Because we have the fuller revelation of God for us in Christ Jesus. We know the promises of God. We know that we have confidence in Christ Jesus. We've been singing it. We've got scripture after scripture that tells us. We know this to be true. I want you to write this down. I I want you to maybe... Write this down somewhere where you'll see it again and again. Stick this in your Bible somewhere. God will deliver you. If you belong to Christ, God will deliver you from death or through death. But either way, you will be delivered. Either way, you will be delivered. If difficulty comes, if trial comes, if an opportunity, a challenge like this should ever come, God may save your life in that moment and deliver you from death. But in the end, when we die, we know in Christ we are delivered through death death into what God has for us. Real quickly in Jesus, we know that we're delivered from the fiery furnace. And God heats his furnace far more hotly than this world ever can. The the judgments of God are far more severe than the judgments of this world. The terror of judgment from the Almighty is far more severe. He is a consuming fire himself. And God delivers us from that fiery furnace by Christ. As God was with the three and with Daniel's, we see in the lion's den. He promises to be with us in affliction. And again, I I started making a list of just some verses there, and then I just stopped because I could have kept on and on. There's so many references. But know this. Hear this. Jesus desires to be exalted in us, in your life, through your life, in both living and, if need be, dying. I mean, that's what Paul said, Philippians 1, 20 and 21. It's my eager anticipation or my expectation and hope that I will not at all be put to shame or ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. I mean, you think of all the near-death experiences he had, floggings and beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks and snake bites and all those things that would have taken his life. He says, I want Christ to always be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ, and if I die, that's gain. Why? Because we're called to be fearlessly faithful unto death, knowing our sure reward. Knowing our sure reward. Revelation 2, 10 and 11 gives us a principle of eternity and its worth. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And that's been the hope of every person, every martyr, every person who suffered and died for the cause of Christ throughout history. I'll be faithful unto death for the crown of life that is to come. So you and I might one day face such a harrowing choice as this. There might be a time where you will be commanded, required, expected to bow. But even in the face of death, we know that God will honor us in eternity. It's what Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. That's why I said, take up your cross and follow me. That following him could be to a cross. But if anyone serves me, Jesus said, this is a promise, not a sentiment. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And Jesus is worth it. Ultimately, he's worth it. In that moment between life and death, the value of my life and the worth of my God, he's worth it. And that moment of acceptance by this culture, submission to this government, I choose to submit to the one true king of my life.
And he's worth it. He's worth it. Would you pray with me? Father, may each of us now, in this relative peace and calm, resolve that we will not bow to any king but Jesus. We will not yield that which is true, that which is good, that which is right. But Father, we'll be faithful to you to the end. We'll be faithful because you, you, Father, and all that you promise are worth it. They're worth it to us. So Father, I pray that in some way, these words that I've shared and the scriptures that we have read and heard together today would, would give us some encouragement here and would also equip us a bit to be ready and that, Father, your, your Holy Spirit would enable the obedience required. In that moment, give us the strength we don't have and our weakness be strong. Father, may we have a vision that's ever-growing of your grandeur and your goodness and your worth. Oh, may we be forever faithful to King Jesus. Lord, this is my prayer today in the name of Jesus. Amen.